Agents Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Chime. Chime offers an award-winning sales acceleration platform built for the real estate industry. Powered by artificial intelligence, Chime delivers the data insights agents and teams need to make the most out of the leads they already have and to get to a close faster. Through an expanding partner network, Chime's easy-to-use conversion platform also delivers quality sales-ready leads from the get-go. It eliminates time-consuming manual tasks and helps agents focus on what matters most, building their network, servicing clients, and growing the bottom line. To learn more about how Chime can help you, visit www.chime.me or call 833-682-4463. Don't we all wish that we had a magic lead machine that could just produce high quality leads and end up cooking and 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 make sure that we follow our our customer everywhere there is to go on the internet and we all had a very good expertise of the platform called google well today actually for the second time i get i get the privilege of interviewing our guest who i'm going to embellish this and and basically say he pretty much found google i mean damn near i'll let him tell his story but he absolute pioneer in the ppc world uh he has since left google is now the ceo of a platform called optimizer which we are going to talk about it's a ppc management platform all of us in the real estate world you know we were so inundated with the lead platforms and facebook and zillow and so few of us focus on probably the best one that exists which is google because it's hard and that's why we brought on uh, Fred, Frederick Valais here today, who, like I said, basically founded Google. He's an author of a book called Digital Marketing in an AI World, Future-Proofing Your PPC Agency. And he's writing another book as we speak. Welcome back. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Welcome back. Yeah, well, we, we've talked before, but this is the first time people are hearing me on your show. So uh, That's right, <laughs> man. They, thanks for being here again. The joke, the inside joke, in case anybody wondering, is we had technical difficulties. So it happens rarely, but it happens. And uh, I get to do this again. So Fred, let's start here. Let's start with with who the hell are you? Uh, I told I already told the the, the uh, audience that you're the founder of Google. So why don't you set the record straight? But tell us, you know, where you're from, what led you to Google, what led you to the States, what, you know, where are you from, all those sort, those sort of things. Yeah, so I was uh, 15 years old when my dad came home and he said, hey, I've been uh, asked by my company, Tandem Computers, to move to the Silicon Valley, to the headquarters. And uh, I think most people at the age of 15 would be like, oh, my God, I'm, I'm leaving my high school, leaving my friends behind. And here I was, I was like, oh, my God, this is the most exciting thing in the world, like, Technology gets invented in Silicon Valley. Computers were invented there. Everything that's exciting in the world, from my perspective as a nerd, as a geek, was really happening there. So I was like, yeah, let's do it. I'm going home. Uh, so came here in 93 and really haven't left since. I did my high school, my college here. I had my first job. Then I joined Google early on in 2002. Got to do some really exciting stuff with them. And then I started my company here as well. So it's been uh, it's been a good ride. And now, like everybody, I'm working from home and, uh, you know, got kids walking all over the place. So, uh, yeah, but it's been fun. I'm used to where we're all used to that. We're all used to that. Yeah. Uh, so and, and actually, I have to lock my door sometimes because my toddler just barges in. So let me ask you this. So let's go back to, you know, where you're from. I, I'm always fascinated with 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 especially those of you that come from Europe specifically. And so tell us a little bit about that and what your dad did and kind of I mean, you, you, you mentioned you call yourself a nerd. Um, but where does this come from? Like, where does somebody like get the interest in all this technology, especially back in the early nineties when it really didn't even exist? Yeah, it didn't. I mean, when I grew up, I mean, my dad brought home a, a laptop computer, which was basically it made a brick and the screen was about this big and every piece of text on it was like just green. There was no graphical user interface. And then one trip that he went to headquarters in America, he came home, he brought like this CompuServe thing, which was dial-up internet, but we had to connect all the way to a dial-up point in the United States and telephone calls were super expensive. So like my first interactions on the internet was literally my dad sitting me down and being like, okay, what is it you want to achieve? Let's write down the steps that we're going to need to take because every minute is going to cost five bucks. Okay. And then we'd log on and be like, okay, 
click this or push that number and like and so um, i wanted to buy like a piece of camera equipment i think and bnh photo and video was already on like the early versions of the internet and so that's what we did but um yeah i mean it was so different like the speed was slow nothing really worked and and i don't know why but i just i gravitated towards technology and that kind of stuff and um you know when i got a little bit of extra pocket money it was like okay, can I go and buy like a CD-ROM player for my computer and then stick it in? And again, CD-ROM, I mean, like who even does CDs nowadays, right? But back in the day, it was like this $1,000 thing that I had to buy to stick in my computer. And I just kind of geeked out on that and loved it. It's cool. I love it. I love it. And so you you came over here as a teenager, right? Yeah. And so, you, you know, you're, you're by and large, you've been, you've been in, in the States most of your life. Would that be a safe, that's a safe assessment? majority of my life i'm uh, gonna be 44 here this year so yeah it's been uh, it's been a while awesome yeah awesome we're we're almost the same age i'm 44 now so yeah. uh, you were probably born in 78 then and i'm a 77er yes i'm 78er how about that how about that so all right you you come over here you you, you obviously you grow up here what did your dad do when he came here what did who did he work for well tandem computers so this was a, a computing company that was doing servers it was used by hospitals and banks and like where transactions were mission critical. Uh, and the best example that he always gave was like, you go to an ATM machine, the computer that runs that ATM machine, if it freezes or it crashes in the middle of like spitting out the money, like it needs to remember when it comes back online, like how many $20 bills has it already given? Otherwise money just disappears in like into the ether and that doesn't work. And so back in the day, this is where these huge machines. And then my dad came out to headquarters because the I'm, I'm from Belgium and buildings in Belgium are old and tiny and they don't have big elevators. And so here's this American company making these amazing computing devices that banks in Belgium are buying, but then the machine shows up at the front door and they're like, wait, the thing is too big. It doesn't actually fit into the door. So now we can't take out part of the wall to move the server into the, uh, the, the building they had. And so they said, well, somebody from Europe needs to come in here and sort of represent that different point of view. Like not every place in the world is like America. Um, and that was his initial job. And then that was a one year assignment. We come here to California. The weather is great. People are great. The activities are great. We're like, hmm, let's ask to extend one more year, one more year. Keep doing this. And eventually it's uh, like I get into college. So I get my own visa. And then that turns into a green card and then turns into citizenship and you know really fortunate and thankful that this country is so open to, to to be so welcoming to foreigners and present us with all these great opportunities it's awesome probably a good time to uh, to do that as well in recent years maybe not so easy but so let me ask you this two two questions number one did your parents stay have stayed yes they temporarily went back to europe to france uh, but now they live in the in boston area Oh, really? The other side of the country. And then the, the last second question, which is has no relevance to our conversation, but I'm just curious, uh, how did they actually figure out how to get these servers through the doors? I don't know that part of the story, but actually, so there is a story I Google because I have good anecdotes from that too. So Larry and Sergey, they're big geeks as well. They, and they love space for some reason, like they're super into space. So I think it was Spaceship One, uh, the Virgin Galactic prototype, the thing that sort of um, sits underneath the, the big plane and then fires up into space. So there was a prototype of that, which Larry and Sergey ended up purchasing and they were like, now what do we do with it? So they wanted to display it in one of the lobbies. And obviously this device, this spaceship was too big to get through even the large front doors of Google. Um, so yeah, one weekend the crane shows up and basically takes out a half a section of the building crane it into the lobby, put the building back together around it. Um, and I imagine it must have been the same with these servers, except that, you know, it's very sexier to have a spaceship in your lobby than to have some random server that was too big. That's awesome. Wow. That's really cool. So, so, okay. So speaking of, of Google's lobby, speaking of Google, you know, you've been there, you know, you were one of the first 500 employees. So that's, that's the truth. So actually talk, talk a little bit about how you got to Google and, and also, and one of the questions that, that I really want to know, cause I think it's interesting is, you know, when Google started ish, which you were there in the beginning, you know, it was always known as this really cool hip place to be. And you, you sat on beanbag chairs and everything was really loose and was fun. So first tell us how you got to Google and then tell us a little bit about that culture that it was back then. And is it still like that today that you know of? 
Yeah. Uh, so how I got into Google. So uh, I worked for Sapient. I was doing IT consulting and it was really cool, but this was around 2000. So the dot-com bubble had started to explode. By early 2002, I had been laid off in one in like the third round of layoffs at that IT consulting company. And, uh, and so then I put together a list of the companies that I thought were pretty cool that I'd like to work at that were local. Google was one of the companies on that list. I think I put eBay on that list as well. So I think I ended up in the right place. But uh, yeah, I put Google on that list. And then the first time uh, there was this guy named Max, or there is this guy named Max, and he went to Stanford. And a lot of the early Google people were from Stanford. And so Max, he would uh, he would recruit from the Stanford campus and Stanford alumni uh, because the referral bonus like was such good money for him that I think he made more money just recruiting people in than doing his actual job <laughs> at Google. Um, so yeah, at one point they call me up, Max calls me up and he's like, hey, here's what we got. Like it's a, a job to review ads. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like I have an engineering degree from Stanford and you want me to review ads? Like, I mean, I think Google's cool, but not that cool. So call me back <laughs> if you have something better. Big financial mistake on my behalf, right? Because those extra couple of months I could have been there sooner were seriously meaningful in terms of stock options. But that aside, a couple of months later, they call back and are like, actually, we're looking to do AdWords, uh, which is now, of course, called Google Ads, but AdWords needs to go into the sixth language. Uh, so they've already done German, Italian, Spanish, French, English. And now they're looking to go into Dutch and Japanese, I think, at the same time, those languages they were starting up. So they needed local speakers, native speakers of those languages to translate, to do the initial customer support and to do the initial reviews of the ads. So listen, here I was still going to review ads, but at least I had a bit more responsibility. Um, and it was kind of cool because like the first 5,000 or so customers out of the Dutch speaking countries, uh, Netherlands and Belgium, I worked with all of them. I knew who they were. Like um, technically there wasn't phone support, but here and there I'd pick up the phone and be like, yeah, just get this thing handled. That was my initial foray into Google. A far cry from what it is like today, probably. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, knew everyone. If, if that, there was, like, literally one cafeteria. Charlie was running the place. Uh, Chef Charlie, of course, who uh, kind of had a claim to fame in the beginning. He was, like, the Grateful Dead chef at, at one point. Uh, but, yeah, culture-wise, it, it was super cool, right? So once I got hired... They, uh, every employee got to buy three things from the company store for free. And so usually that meant getting one of the bean bags in the Google colors and getting two of the lava lamps um, and then decorating your cubicle with that stuff. But yeah, then also like the initial building that I worked in, uh, I went through an interview process with Matt Cutts, uh, whom I'm sure most people recognize as the, uh, the Google SEO guy back in the early days. So he was looking to build the SEO spam team. And he needed some help and because they knew I had an engineering degree. They said, hey, even though you're kind of like interviewing for this Dutch thing, why don't you go and talk to Matt for a bit? So uh, Matt and I, we go up into uh, what is now known as Building Zero, so the original Google building. Uh, it's actually not the original. The original was in Palo Alto on University Avenue. But this was the first building in the current campus that they've now had for you know, two decades. So, uh, so yeah, we go up to the first floor uh, to the quote-unquote boardroom. And the board table, uh, this being a young company, not quite sure they were going to make a lot of money, but kind of like promising. It was actually a ping pong table. So it was not an expensive board table. It was a ping pong table. So we sit around the ping pong table uh, doing our interview. And then halfway through, like the door opens up and Eric Schmidt walks in. Eric Schmidt, of course, uh, CEO of Google. Um, he's all like apologetic. He's like, oh, I'm sorry. Like I came into the boardroom, but I didn't know you guys had it, that you guys were meeting. So continue on, do your thing like no egos of any sort. Um, that was just kind of cool. And then I was also playing hockey with the founders. So Google in the early days was known to have like these pickup roller hockey games twice a week. And it was a little bit weird because like in my interview process, like I did this temp to hire program and they really wanted to see a lot of productivity, a lot of commitment to the job. And technically I wasn't really done until five o'clock, but at four o'clock on Tuesday and Thursday, I was like, hey, people are playing hockey. like. I'm playing hockey too. You do what you want. If you want to fire me, sure. Um, so I'd go out there and uh, uh, Larry Page had already stopped playing. He had like back and knee issues, but Sergey was still playing every every game. And so got to play hockey together with Sergey, against Sergey. Uh, made some really good friends in those early hockey games. Uh, you know, people who came to my wedding eventually. And 
was yeah, just super cool to be there so early. Wow. Wow. So it started with, so then, okay, what happened with that interview where you got interrupted? Did anything come of that? No. So uh, I didn't make the cut for Mad Cuts. Uh, so I ended up continuing on that path to work on uh, Google ads. Now, I mean, I don't regret that a bit. So I, I have been dabbling in PPC advertising back in 1998 when GoTo was the, the only place really to do pay-per-click and keyword advertising. And I was in college at the time, and so I buy video cassettes from Blockbuster. Um, and, and if you understand like the movie industry, like with the video cassettes, they were being sold at a cost of about $100 a cassette to Blockbuster. And then Blockbuster was contractually not allowed to resell those cassettes for a cheaper price until like a release date that the movie theaters or the, the studio set. Uh, but some of these Blockbuster franchises, they didn't follow the rules. So they'd have these $100 cassettes being sold for 10 bucks before they were available on eBay or Amazon, uh, any of those places. So I'd pick up these cassettes and I'd just figure it out and I'd buy keywords on GoTo to drive traffic to my, my listing. Uh, I think I was listing them on eBay and then I'd sell them for 60 bucks because right, that was, it was either you have to have a local blockbuster that was not following the rules or you paid a hundred bucks to someone else. So I made a little bit of drinking money that way, but that was PPC and it never, never became big for me. But then I go to Google and, uh, one of the early team meetings that I'm in, it's like a, an ask me anything type session. And one of the guys who works with these really big customers says, well, most of my customers, they're like these mega affiliates. I'm like, ding, 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 light bulb goes off. Uh, well, if they're spending $30,000 a month or more, they must be making some money. So I start putting the pieces together and I decide I'll, I'll become an affiliate for eBay for 21st century car insurance. And I literally start buying ads with various keywords for these businesses. And then if I drive a new eBay subscriber, they pay me 45 bucks. So my whole game was arbitrage. I figured out what clicks can I get cheaply enough and with a decent enough conversion rate that I make money on the, on the spread. And so for a while there, I had my own dedicated account manager within Google, even though I was working on that same team uh, because I was spending enough money with them. Uh, and then Cheryl Sandberg, who's now CEO at Facebook, one day I get invited to go and speak at the eBay conference uh, in Europe because I'm such a good affiliate. And so I'm like, oh shit, like, am I even supposed to, am I allowed to do these things? So Cheryl Sandberg, she was my boss. So I go to her and I'm like, uh, is it cool if I go and speak at this eBay thing? She's like, yeah, absolutely. Like you're a living example that AdWords is effective. It works. Right. And she saw that as such a success story. And that was like sort of my, my carte blanche to go and uh, continue being an advertiser, but at the same time working Google. And that I think was really effective because all these engineers at Google, they're building these products and it's like, well, here, just go and advertise, right? Like figure it out, but then actually figuring it out and how you make that work. There's a, there's a big divide between what the engineers theoretically built and how you put it into practice. And I was that person putting it into practice and sharing what needed to be better. Wow. That's, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I was sitting here thinking to myself, you're brilliant about this stuff and you're probably actually explaining something that's very primitive to someone of your, of your, uh, of your brain power. So you're doing this stuff on the side while you're working for Google. Is that correct? Yeah. So what does the evolution look like for that PPC world and AdWords like that to where, you know, while you were there and then at what point did you leave? And then let's get into really just more of an understanding of how that works and then how it's applicable to real estate, because it really is. Uh, but, but tell us a little bit about that first. Yeah. I mean, so in the beginning days, it was really primitive and that's why it was so exciting to me because I could actually fix some of these problems and primitive in terms of, I was running ads, I was buying keywords, but I didn't actually have any conversion tracking. So like who signed up for eBay and how that connected back to a keyword that I had bought, like that was a complete black box. So I decided I can put in my own like intermediate server before I send them off to eBay and then put in place like a tracking cookie and a pixel. And then I can connect the dots back together. But conversion tracking didn't exist from AdWords, from Google ads. So most advertisers didn't have the ability to do this search terms report, right? So I'd be buying these keywords, but they might be broad match keywords and Google would show my ad to someone where the query was relevant, but not exactly the same as my keyword. 
and I get conversions, but I don't know what somebody actually typed in. So I'm not able to optimize and say, oh, maybe these things should be negative keywords and these things I should actually add as keywords and maybe set a different bid because they work, but they work at a different level than the keyword that I had intended. And so I, I built my own search terms report using, again, that same intermediate server technology. And then, you know, obviously Google is not dumb, right? So they're like, well, this seems to be the things you need to be effective at advertising. So let's build that. And then I got more involved on the product side, on the evangelist side. And uh, it really helped build a lot of the technology people use today. Uh, I was one of the original team members on the AdWords editor team that built that. I was on the team that acquired Urchin, which is now known as Google Analytics. So really a lot of the stuff that we take for granted today, we, we didn't have it back then. And we, we had to create it based on understanding what was really necessary. Well, and you say, uh, I don't think still to this day, many people fully understand it. They get it, but they don't get it. Right. And, and you, you talk about, you know, you would talk about algorithms and at the end of the day, you know, cause I preach about this on social media, which is kind of the same on Google, but not because, you know, social platforms, a social platform, Google is a search engine, but you know, explain how that works, understanding just how the, because at the end of the day, what realtors understand is that they want to be high on a search, right? When somebody goes to the web and most people like, like Google's like Kleenex is to facial tissues, right? Xerox is to copiers. Google is to search engines. It's just where we go. Other, I mean, the other ones have never made a, a dent in what Google has done other than maybe in other countries, right? But here it's Google. And so maybe, maybe help somebody who doesn't have, you know, they, they know everybody knows what Google is. If you don't know what Google is, you're basically dead <laughs> or, or just not mature enough. You're not old enough yet. Right. You might be my three-year-old probably knows what Google is, but explain kind of how the algorithm works as it relates. And I'm not sure how familiar you are with social media, but I'm sure you have pretty good understanding, but you know, the algorithm, like the idea is I got to play the game. I call it a game so that my posts show up more often on my audience's feed. Therefore I'm remembered. Same concept with Google. When somebody searches something that is relevant to you, you want to show up as high as possible. Talk a little bit about that. And obviously there's a difference between paid versus non, and there's two different lists, right? Right. Well, and I think so on social, it's really about the velocity of the post, right? So the, the social networks want to see fresh new content that builds high engagement in a short period of time. And that, that engagement is important because that's what makes Facebook's news feed sticky. That's what makes Instagram posts sticky. Now, th th those mechanisms are interruptive, right? So it's about putting something in front of someone that's maybe a little bit clickbaity so that it drives that engagement or the image is like a little bit more provocative. Even like we look at Nike and Adidas, the way that they design products these days is based on the assumption that you're going to be scrolling through a lot of shoes on the app. And the shoe that's going to make you stop is probably the more colorful one, the more unique one, right? And that's what social is also about. Now, search is very different. Search is about somebody's already expressed exactly what they needed, and you have a chance to capture that moment of relevance. And so what that means is if somebody goes and does a search for a three-bedroom townhouse in Palo Alto, and you happen to be a realtor with a new development that has a couple of these units available, well, that's perfect. You are the answer to that person. And the person, the consumer, in many cases, doesn't even really distinguish that much between ads and organic results. And that's a distinction that we draw as marketers, right? So we as marketers, we want to have organic results because we don't pay per click for those. We do pay for content and for you know optimizing our website, but we don't have to pay every time somebody clicks. Uh, and we do pay for the clicks on search engine marketing because, again, these are relevant. But from the consumer's perspective, it's like, hey, this was the answer to my question. Let me go and click. Let me go and put in my lead info. And now I'm going to work with that realtor, potentially buy this place. And so that's the key difference. It's not about interrupting. It's about being relevant. And so the algorithm, the way that that plays into it is it rewards not the freshest ad or the newest ad, but the ad that is the most relevant answer to that question. And they measure that fairly straight up through click-through rate. So imagine you got 100 impressions, uh, you get two advertisers, one, adver one ad gets 10 clicks in those 100 impressions, the other only gets five clicks. That is a 10% versus a 5% click-through rate. 
the ad with the 10% click-through rate is going to have a higher quality score and higher ad rank as a result of that. And if you have a higher ad rank, it reduces the amount of money you have to pay to get that same click. So um, in layman's terms, twice the CTR, half the cost that you need to pay to Google to maintain your position. There's a little bit more nuance to it nowadays, but by and large, that's a good way to think about it. Okay, so I literally typed that in. Three bedroom, townhome, I think. Did you say townhome, is that what you said? Yeah, townhome or something like that. Uh, in Palo Alto. And, and there's no ads when, when actually I get, I get the results, but there's also no realtors, right. which, is inter- which is interesting. Uh, but there's going to be realtors on the pages that come up on the top of the search, which right. are apartments.com is number one, Trulia is number two, Zillow is number three, Apartment Guide is number four, Rent Cafe is number five. It's all, it's all companies, right? Hot pads, realtor.com, forrent.com. That's what I get. So you, when, when, thinking from a real estate agent's perspective, because I, I obviously everything that you're explaining is very tactical and technical and I love it. But at the same token, I want to understand and realize that not everybody has that expertise. I certainly don't. So I can easily dumb this down because I'm one of them. But how did they get there? How did apartments.com get to the top you know, you mentioned the 10 versus the five, but maybe try to simplify that even more. Right. And so in that case, I think you're seeing organic results. Um, and this is really interesting, right? Because Google actively makes a decision that if no ads are high enough in quality to beat the organic results or to be at least like on par, then they'd rather not show those ads than mock up the experience for the user. Because Google's mission is to have long-term loyal searchers and the way that you get that is by consistently being really good at answering questions now what you're seeing is it's a lot of the aggregators that show up there right and and that kind of makes sense and maybe my example was a little bit bad done in terms of like a single piece of real estate but what you do find is when you have larger complexes being built or like these luxury towers in miami where you have a lot of units to be sold at the same time like that might be a really good thing to put up an ad for and where you could actually also be really relevant and you as the actual advertiser behind that as opposed to the aggregator you can say something more compelling to get that user to click you can put in better site links to take people you know to pages of photos pages of uh, amenities in that location right to make the experience a bit more engaging uh, and draw users in that way Now, of course, if you find your properties or you get your leads from these aggregators, you can still use Google for remarketing, right? So you got your lists of people who've come through Zillow, you got the lead information, well, you can do something like customer match. You can communicate the email address that you had to Google. And then as that user now goes about their business, reading news, looking up sports scores, Google has what they call the display network. And the display network can retarget or do remarketing to those users. Um, the other thing that's fascinating is you can combine that remarketing list with search behavior. So now if somebody goes and does a, a fairly generic search like new apartment, then uh, then we can find that you can combine that with the audience list. And even though you don't know much about what that user meant when they searched for apartments, they will actually see an ad from you because you knew that they were already in the market for that specific condo tower. So, all right, let's let's simplify this or or shift it. The conversation because it's all been kind of high level. Let's talk, let's get a little bit more specific now. And let's say I've got a realtor who has spent their career doing what I would consider more traditional means um, with their real estate, with, with trying to buy, find buyers and sellers, right? And, and by that, I mean, they've bought the leads through the aggregators. They've probably run Facebook ads because there's a hell of a lot more companies out there that are, that are doing that, right? And, and selling them on that. And they've hadn't, they haven't had much success. And they're looking and they keep hearing uh, people like us talking about Google PPC. They try to dabble in it themselves. I think Facebook makes it a little bit easier. It's different, but they make it a little bit easier to navigate. So if somebody wanted to get into doing this PPC, because every, some of the things you talk about are over most of our heads, you know, the, the whole cooking concept and, and, you know, obviously we understand retargeting, but we don't know how to execute it. And so if I'm, if I'm kind of very primitive in this and I'm just like, listen, I want to grow my, I want to a grow my Google presence and start working my way towards ads. You know, what is the, what is the best piece of advice that you can give somebody to simplify that process so they can get into Google? 
Yeah, honestly, Google has made it much easier over the, the last couple of years. So when I talk about search and putting in keywords and doing remarketing, it sounds complicated, but you just go into Google and you set up uh, the campaign type and you say, hey, I want a remarketing campaign. They'll show you the code that you just paste onto your lead generation page uh, or onto your content pages. And so every time somebody goes and reads an article from yours, they go onto that list. Um, so you know, all of these realtors really into producing content, right? So what's the market report for the zip code? What's the, what are the trends? Those pages, you should have your Google cookies running on there, your Google tracking code, so that you can automatically then start to retarget those customers as they go and do other things. And it's not very complicated. Um, and then really what it comes down to is you you tell Google, here's my audience that, that you've automatically built based on visits to my website. Uh, here's my budget. So I want to dedicate, say, $1,000 a month to retargeting to these customers. Um, and then an ad text, either a display image or a bunch of uh, text components that Google will automatically put together in what they think is the right way. And so with that, you're basically off to the races and then Google will figure it out. And they even have this new campaign format that's called Performance Max. And it's, uh, again, very few things you need to do. You just set up conversion tracking, you put in a, your logo, a piece of text. If you have a video, you can put a video in uh, and a budget. And then Google will automatically figure out how to run ads on search, display, YouTube, remarketing, as well as discovery. So discovery ads, that's a newer thing. That's kind of Google's feed-based format. Uh, and a really great place to discover new customers. And, uh, and it can be both branding as well as direct response. And I think the big question is how do you put these pieces together, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I'd probably start with remarketing because most people listening already have some efforts in terms of lead gen. So making sure that as those people whose leads you have remember about you as they do things that interact with Google, that's probably step number one. And then from there, you can sort of build on and say, hey, now let's do some, uh, some keyword targeting. But I think one of the bigger problems that advertisers have is how do you keep your ads in sync with the ever-changing inventory? Uh, and, and that can be challenging, right? And that's where we have tools that an optimizer like Campaign Automator. Uh, and we have big realtor firm, uh, realty companies using this. And they basically have a listing of uh, all the places. And like, is it a townhouse? Is it uh, how many bedrooms? How many bathrooms? What's the square footage? What's the price? And all of this feeds through a template. And so then it makes sure you have a thousand ads running relevant to every zip code somebody could search. So if they're looking for that five bedroom in this particular zip code, um, and it helps, of course, if those users are looking for something a little bit more specific, right? Like not the thing that you can find easily on Zillow, but like what's that five bedroom, one acre property that's maybe a little bit harder to come by. If you can be the one that's listing for that and have a fantastic ad, then that can really uh, work very well. It's, it's very interesting. So, and, and I meant, I think I remember you telling me last time too, when it comes to remarketing, there's a lot of agents. So again, that, that have bought hundreds and thousands of leads. If they have those lists that can also be brought over to Google. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. And so that's customer match. So uh, fundamentally think about it as building audiences. And so remarketing is one way to automatically build an audience from people who visit your website customer match is building an audience from people you've interacted with in the real world. And so that generally means you have their email address, you have their physical address, and Google will try to map that to someone they know in the Google ecosystem. And so the match rate of that depends. Uh, Google, you know, I, I have a Gmail address, I have a, an address with my last name. And if the lead that I've given has my Gmail address, then Google may not be able to match that to the, uh, the other email that I use, but they'll do their best to make that match as much as they can. And then that becomes a new audience that you can target. And then you can start combining audiences. You can exclude audiences. So one thing, for example, you have a list of the people that have already bought from you. So why show them ads again? Why waste money on clicks from them if they're probably not ready to buy that next place? So you can target to an audience, but you can also exclude an audience from mm -hmm. seeing your ads. Hmm. Interesting. How complicated is that on the back end? Oh, on the back end for Google, yeah, super complicated. But for us advertisers, luckily, it's not that bad. Interesting. So what would be, so what do you see are some of the bigger mistakes that people make when it comes to doing PPC? Because again, I, I think in our world, a lot of people aren't even doing it or they get in 
and they dabble with it and then they jump out because they, you know, they, just, they, need, they need to hire a professional like you, which I do want to talk about that. But what are some of the bigger mistakes that you see people making as, as they get into this world? Yeah, I mean, the biggest mistake that I consistently see is people just don't respect the idea of relevance. And they, uh, they look at the keyword estimator tool from Google. And then if you type in a keyword that's, that's fairly specific, Google is going to say, well, there's very low traffic on that. And so everybody's so focused on lots of impressions that they end up going for the, the broad keywords like apartments, homes for sale, right? Those are big volume keywords that could mean a lot of different things to different people. And so you overinvest in that. You're, you're competing against these big aggregators with deep pockets. So it's just, it's an uphill battle. You probably don't have the exact relevance to get a high quality score. And so Google starts saying, okay, well now you as an advertiser, your quality score is a two out of 10, which means you have to pay much more to get future clicks. And that's just, it's an uphill battle that can be a slog. You're much better off trying to find sort of like the torso of keywords. So somewhere between the long tail and the head keywords, the really expensive high volume ones, there's that, the, the torso. And that's where things are relatively specific, but not specific to the point where you've, you've you know, five bedroom, three bathroom, one acre house. Like that's probably not what people type in, right? But they might type in five bedroom house. So that might be a torso keyword. And so focusing there is probably a better place to start. And again, it's because that relevance is going to build. If you get it, you're going to get fewer clicks, but that's okay. I mean, how many clicks do you need if they're qualified prospects? And you're basically doing that pre-qualification by having better keywords. And that's great because you don't want to pay for these keywords from kind of like uh, tire kickers. Where do, you, where do you recommend getting your keyword recommendations from? Because I know there's platforms for that. Yeah, I mean, go directly to Google. They have a free keyword planner tool. Their estimates are not really that accurate, I would say. So even if you see something that says, well, you're going to get 10 impressions per month or 10 clicks per month, don't worry about it. Like if that's a good keyword, you might actually get way more uh, clicks than, than what they predict. Um, that's where I would start. And then Google's gotten really good too at uh, taking a broad match keyword and kind of broadening that out and figuring out when is the right situation to show the ad. And that actually talks then too about the, the ad itself. So the ad itself in the old days used to be a text ad with a couple of headlines and a couple of description lines. And so that was tricky because if you were writing an ad for like homes for sale, well, how do you qualify that user, right? As somebody who's looking for a home for sale could be looking for, it could be a first time buyer, could be a move up buyer, could be a luxury buyer. You don't know that, but Google actually knows a lot about users through previous searches they've done, through previous behaviors, what kind of websites they read. And so nowadays you can actually give Google ad text components. So you can give them 15 headlines, four descriptions, and Google will put those together on the fly based on what they think is going to resonate with that prospective customer. And so that makes it work much better with some of these more generic queries where it could lead one way or the other, but Google probably knows. That's, that's fast. I mean, it's just amazing how smart it's gotten. Last, last question, because I, I do want to talk to you a little bit about Optimizer and, and how that can support agents. Because I do think a lot of people are going to come away from this, uh, you know, a little bit like, what just happened? Like, what did he just say? But I know I need it, but I don't know if I know how to do it. Yeah. Um, in, in our world, there is a lot of, there's a sea of sameness, right? A lot of people are doing the same stuff. They're using a lot of the same tools, the same automation, the same, the same styles of marketing. How do you differentiate? How do you, how do you, how, how can you go into Google and, and is, and is it all, is it go? is this going to go back to keywords as well? Or, or what do you recommend for someone to, uh, to, to, to be more effective than the masses? Yeah, and that's actually the, almost the title of my next book. It's called Unlevel the Playing Field, the biggest mind shift in PPC history. And that's coming out end of January. So it should be out by the time people listen to this. But the, the whole notion is that, yes, everybody has access to more and more automated capabilities to run these ads for you. So it enhances that. that uh, how did you say it? Um, everybody's the same, right? Yeah, see a sea of sameness, yeah. Sea of sameness, exactly. Um, so how do you stand out from that? Well, how you stand out is you bring your human intelligence and your human contextualization to the machines. And so, you know, when you talk about real estate, that's hyper-local by nature, right? So what is happening in your city? Like what new zoning laws just got passed that maybe 
incentivize people to buy one type of proper property versus another? Um, what type of taxation changes are coming that may push people to buy this year versus next year? These are sort of the insights that Google machine learning has a hard time picking up on. So the Google can say, if somebody's looking for homes for sale, while generally we see higher conversion rates of people filling in a lead gen form on weekends when they're more in the mode of actually like researching where to move to. Uh, and maybe evenings as well, like 7 p.m. until 9 p.m. That works really well. So Google has this idea about conversion rate. And so they can say, oh yeah, listen, we're gonna show Jeff's ads a little bit more frequently, we're going to bid higher during these good times of the week. Uh, or if people are searching from desktops, because maybe that converts better than mobile devices. But what they don't know is that local aspect, right? What is going on in your city? And it's like, if you can bring that into the mix, and so you can hyper-segment your campaigns, and you can say, here, I'm going to run a campaign uh, for this county and a different uh, campaign for a different county. And if you operate across states, obviously, you have different campaigns for multiple states. And then you could set your targets, your, your cost per acquisition targets differently based on what you think is going to happen in the market with, uh, with conversion rates and the type of stuff that the Google machine learning algorithm is probably not thinking about. And now to, let me give you another example to kind of like make this more real. It's outside of the real estate industry, but I hope you can bring it back to the, the issues that you're facing. Right, say that you sell automotive parts. You know that many people's batteries, they die the first time it freezes overnight. So you know you're probably going to get a lot of new battery sales after first frost. But Google doesn't know that. So Google expects tomorrow to be exactly the same as every other day of the year in terms of uh, conversion rates. But you look at the weather forecast, you say tomorrow is going to freeze. I need to be ready to sell more car batteries. And so my actual conversion rate is probably gonna skyrocket. Google doesn't know it, but how I can act on that is I can say, hey, Google, I'm willing to pay you a higher cost per acquisition. So go and bid more aggressively. And Google is gonna show your ad in a higher position, but you're actually gonna end up not paying more because your conversion rate's gonna go way up, right? And so you've captured that new opportunity where the machine learning system would have been too slow. It would have said, oh, hey, something interesting happened yesterday, so tomorrow we're going to do something about it. But by that time, the new cat, the batteries have been sold to the people who need them, and the opportunity is gone. Right? And so that's how you can unlevel the playing field and put yourself back in charge. Interesting. Yeah, I can I can think of a few ways that that would that would carry over. So, but I but we're running short on time, and I really want to touch on what you do now. And so, when it comes to all of this, and and I'm gonna I will say this as well. Tristan, the founder of Lab Code Agents, everybody listening knows who he is. You know, we did a recent uh, training in one of our other platforms called, he calls it the Google Five. And he's just talking about the different ways that you can use Google to your advantage, right? And I, there was a bunch of people that text me separately afterwards saying, you know, I, I need to get into Google and to do this. What does Tristan recommend? And his response was, it's really complicated. I actually hire people and he uses Udemy or something like that. Uh, mm -hmm. That's what he would recommend. But so I want to hear from somebody like you who clearly has a phenomenal understanding of this. You're an expert. You're the founder of Google, as I've coined you. Yeah. Um, I want to know, you know, where where do you recommend someone just assuming that basic knowledge, what what A can an optimizer do for them? And if it doesn't do everything, then where do you recommend someone go in order to get this taken care of for them and to be the most effective? Because I have a feeling if somebody tries to do this by themselves, they're not going to have as much success based on the way you describe a lot of this stuff. Exactly. You want to be very careful, especially in those early stages. So if there's a freelancer, consultant, agency that can help you with the setup, that is going to be a good investment. Ask those agencies if they're using Optimizer because Optimizer makes them more efficient. It gives them more access to those best practices. Uh, now, if you want to go at it yourself or you've already been doing this a little bit, we have a new product. It's called Optimizer Lite, and that is a free solution that will do the auditing um, and make suggestions for you. So stuff like budget reallocation. And, and actually, if you're advertising on Facebook as well as Google, and YouTube, and you add a few things to the mix, we will tell you, okay, hey, look, your cost per acquisition on Google is actually really good. So why don't we take some of your Facebook budget and put that towards Google? And we know we can predict how much you can actually spend on Google before that campaign has no more potential to get more customers. So we'll tell you the exact amount to shift around. Uh, we can also keep you under budgets, right? So if you say, I'm new to this and I don't want to spend more than a thousand bucks on Google in my first month, 
we can make sure that you get capped and we turn off the campaigns automatically when that happens. So there's a number of things that we can do to help make you more efficient, give you a little bit of a safety blanket. Um, and then with the audit, we can do cool stuff too. So, you know, you set up your first campaign, we're going to run that through an audit of like 80 elements and you're probably going to get a C score, right? So basically a failing grade, but with that failing grade, we're going to tell you why. And now you can start to understand and we, and we give you links and we say, okay, well, here, you didn't use site links. What's a site link? I don't know. Never heard about it. But Fred tells me it's important. Okay. So now you start to understand and we give you a place to put in these site links and it makes your campaign better makes your performance better. Um, so that's where a tool like Optimizer can certainly help. And then agencies hopefully won't make those mistakes. But even if you do use an agency, if you're using Optimizer, they'll have that audit. They'll make sure they won't make the mistake. So uh, that's where I would start. Well, how would you compare an Optimizer to something like a TubeBuddy? You familiar with that? No, actually, that sounds like a YouTube video creator. It is. It is. Uh, it's not a creator, but it is something that helps YouTubers optimize and the proper keywords and that sort of thing. Yeah. I probably not nearly as advanced. So then my next question would be, is optimizer for uh, ultimately the, the, the realtor, or is it more for the agency that the realtor is going to hire? Yeah. Optimizers for the, the professional digital marketer. So someone who knows what they want to achieve and will help you achieve more results in less time. Optimizer Alliance, so this is the brand new offering that actually is also for the uh, the business. So if you're the realtor, you want to dabble in PPC, it's a good place to kind of get your bearings, know the questions you should be asking, and make you a hell of a lot smarter once you start approaching those agencies or as you build up your own expertise. But by the way, you mentioned Udemy. So that is a fantastic place to learn about how to do Google ads. Uh, Isaac Rudensky runs a great course on there. It's gotten over, I think, 200,000 people watching it. Uh, so that's very tactical. It's very practical. And it's about $13 to take that course. He's going to teach you exactly what elements you need to put in place to be successful. Um, and we have an optimizer course on there too. So if you decide to use optimizer, it'll walk you through the tool, kind of give you the best practices and make sure that you hit the ground running. Where can someone learn more about all of this? And, and, you know, obviously there's Optimizer, which by the way, let me spell that for you because um, Fred decided to get very creative with how he spelled it and which makes it very, you know, very hard to spell. Uh, he cut out vowels. So it's O-P-T-M-Y-Z-R.com, right, uh, is the website. Uh, but where does somebody go? So let's just say, A, I just gave him the website. So it's O-P-T-M-Y-Z-R.com. But if somebody, if somebody says, you know what, Fred, I, I, I love what you just talked through. I want to learn more about this. Is that what you would recommend now that I mentioned it? Um, would you recommend going to get a class on, on a Udemy or where do you recommend someone going to learn more or do they just go to Google and Google it? Yeah, well, <laughs> nothing wrong with Googling it, right? <laughs> but yeah, I mean, if you want to, again, it depends. Do you want to become that digital marketing expert and being good at digital marketing is obviously foundational to any business success nowadays, but it doesn't mean you have to be the expert. You just have to have an expert working for you. Right. So, you, and then you have to ask that question, like, are you willing to invest in that relationship right now? Or do you rather invest your time to become that expert yourself? So it depends on personal interest. Udemy is fantastic. If you want to build up that own, your own expertise, but if you just want to know how to not look stupid in a meeting with an agency, like then Udemy is just going to be seven hours of way too much information that you're not going to get, right? So then, and then I think Optimizer Lite, there's other auditing tools out there that you can try. I mean, they, again, they will tell you, okay, this is something that you're not doing in your account. Now you know to go and ask an agency, like, should I be doing this? Like, explain to me why this is going to be beneficial. How would you guys help me do this? Um, and that really fosters that great, um, discussion that then gets you to the right place. Where do they learn more about Optimizer Lite? I don't even see that on the website. Uh, yes. So that is launching very, very soon. By the time we're listening to this, uh, that should be there. So Optimizer Lite is going to be right there on the homepage uh, as a way that you can sign up. Is Lite without vowels too? Uh, well, there's two vowels in there. <laughs> <laughs> Optimizer LT. No, it's L-I-T. <laughs> yeah, you know, it would go together. That's awesome. Fred, if somebody wants to connect with you, what's the best way to do so? Yeah, so uh, look me up on Twitter. It's at Silicon Valleys. So it's a play on my last name, V-A-L-L-A-E-Y-S. 
Silicon Valleys. And uh, you can find me on Optimizer, the blog. You can reach out through there, reach out to my support team, and uh, certainly happy to chat with people and help you do better real estate in PPC. I love it. Is there uh, anywhere on Facebook? Do you guys have a group or anything like that? Well, yeah, Super Optimizer group. It's for customers. So once you become a customer, then uh, you get access to the, the discussion forum. <laughs> but we, uh, we're, we're heavy on the search side, Jeff. Uh, uh, not so much on the social. I, I get it. I get it. I just was curious because <laughs> um, I didn't want to leave that out. So optimizer.com. Remember, it's spelled goofy. Just take out the take out the vowels and just, you know, O-P-T-M-Y-Z-R.com or Silicon Valets on uh, Twitter. Are you active? Yeah, pretty active. I'm on there every day. Um, and especially if people ask me questions, I do tend to respond. I might not retweet that many things, but. Awesome. It's That's funny because like in PPC, like Twitter for some reason is huge, in, but then SEO, I don't think is that active on Twitter. Uh, but yeah, PPC just to be found our home there and that's where we live. That's awesome. Fred, this has been fantastic. I got to do it twice. Uh, it's been an excellent conversation. I definitely want to stay in touch and uh, appreciate you sharing with our audience. Yeah. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for listening, everyone. This episode of the LabGoat Agents podcast is brought to you by RedX, the complete real estate prospecting solution. RedX offers high quality lead data on expireds, for sale by owners, vacant rental property owners, pre-foreclosures, and geo leads, the number one data source for neighborhood prospecting. You can also filter, organize, and call your leads inside Vortex, the all-in-one lead management platform, free with any lead subscription. With RedX, you get more than just phone numbers. You get all the tools you need to connect with more homeowners who are actively looking to sell. RedX is offering our listeners $150 off. Just go to redx.bz forward slash LCA. That's R-E-D-X dot B-Z forward slash LCA to sign up for RedX today. Agents Podcasts.